0: Welcome to Opinion Has it. I'm Jonathan Stein hosting our podcast today for a special edition episode. Since World War II, European integration has always seemed to move fastest in a crisis, and the past year has been a watershed. When the pandemic hit, the European Union brushed aside its deficit and debt taboos and its Member states unleashed massive stimulus spending. And last July, EU leaders agreed on a 750 billion euro recovery plan to be financed by issuing joint European debt for the first time ever.
1: We begin with a European Union that is celebrating exactly that union.
0: The deal, which came after four days of tough talks, is a big win for the French President Emmanuel Macron and maybe an even bigger win for German Chancellor Angela Merkel.
2: This is a good deal, this is
0: a strong deal, and most importantly, this is the right deal for Europe right now. This is an urgent and exceptional necessity for an urgent and exceptional crisis. But what in 2020 had started to seem like a good crisis for the EU, has bogged down since the beginning of this year. Horrible sense of deja vu here in Europe that France's President Macron is describing as Europe's third wave. New lockdowns, new regulations. Streets deserted, schools and shops closed again. Prolonged lockdowns in many member countries drove the European economy back into recession in the first quarter. The recovery plan is still not fully ratified and the pace of vaccination is lagging far behind other developed countries.
1: Supply shortages and thousands of
2: appointments canceled indefinitely.
0: The U.S. has been slow off the mark in its vaccination drive. and
2: The World Health Organization has criticized the speed of the COVID-19 vaccine rollout in Europe, saying that it is, quote, unacceptably slow.
0: But our guest today thinks Europe can still make the most of this crisis and emerge more unified than before.
1: Hi, how are you, Jonathan?
0: Niels Steigersen is an economist and an emeritus professor at the University of Copenhagen.
1: I can hear you very well.
0: He spent more than a half century observing and participating in the European integration process. As a member of the Delors Committee, he helped establish the roadmap to economic and monetary union, or EMU. This culminated in the introduction of the euro in 1999. He joined us recently from his home in Copenhagen. Niels, Europe seems to have come full circle. In 1970, the original vision of EMU called for parallel integration of fiscal and monetary policy. But the Delors Report in 1989 and the Maastricht Treaty establishing the EU three years later ruled out a common fiscal policy. Now the EU seems to be looking at fiscal policy in a new light. Does this reflect the extraordinary demands of the pandemic or has the economic and
1: intellectual ground shifted as well? I think uh, Jonathan both can account for the change that we can observe. Of course, the size of the pandemic shock was uh, of a different order of magnitude than anything we had seen for a very long time. And that, uh, in a sense, cleared the ground for some of the traditional arguments that fiscal policy should not be relied upon too much, it had been misused, and in any case, countries had not been sufficiently prudent prior to the crisis. This was a truly uh, exogenous uh, shock. So you couldn't say easily that countries were to blame for it in any sense. They should have done more before the crisis, that's for sure, but nobody could say that if they had done so, uh, there wouldn't have been a need for something like what we are facing today. So that's uh, one thing. Uh, The other, the more intellectual change, uh, I think is due to the fact that uh, no doubt fiscal policy was somewhat underplayed uh, for quite some time as a result of the design of the Maastricht Treaty. At the time that was done, 30 years ago, fiscal policy was uh, miscredited after about 15 years of uh, mismanagement of the European economies, uh, creating... um, high levels of debt and and high levels of inflation at a time. Inflation had been brought down, but in order to preserve that achievement, it was felt that fiscal policy should be put on a tighter rein and and the idea that fiscal policy could be used as a regular stabilizer beyond what is automatically done when revenues fall as as the economy goes into recession. Uh, Apart from that, uh, there should be some... uh, fairly clear rules about national behavior that would ensure that one could keep up in the best possible way the inflation. So the bargain in, in the treaty at the time and 30 years ago was that uh, if you agree uh, countries that were prone to maybe some fiscal excesses, <clears throat> if you accept that uh, you can uh, uh, put some restraints on your fiscal policy, the monetary union uh, with a single currency will deliver to you lower and more stable inflation than you could have achieved on your own. That was a basic bargain at the time. Uh, And when we look back on that today, uh, it's not surprising maybe that uh, some countries are asking themselves, what is this bargain? Uh, We can get low inflation anyway, because uh, now uh, everybody, including the central banks, uh, say that interest rates are going to be low for quite a long time. So uh, we don't really need to be very cautious on fiscal policy. So the climate is is very different. Uh, The the interesting thing, of course, is to ask, how long will that situation uh, persist? No one
0: can know the answer to that question, but prolonged low interest rates also may have set the stage for extending European integration to fiscal policy itself. Last May, French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Angela Merkel unveiled a joint proposal for a European recovery fund.
2: The leaders of Germany and France have reaffirmed their commitment to a massive recovery fund for the European Union.
0: The German Chancellor had her first face-to-face meeting since the pandemic with French President Emmanuel Macron who warned, waiting around won't work. These are two leaders who want to work together and be the driving force for Europe. For the first time, the EU would be allowed to borrow on its own account, clearing away a major obstacle to a common European fiscal policy. Niels, last July, European leaders agreed to a form of debt mutualization to finance the 750 billion euro recovery fund. But the fund, known as Next Generation EU, is supposed to wind down in 2024. Do you see any possibility of it continuing in some form?
1: It uh, might be... uh... One has to note, however, that uh, in the ratification of that agreement from July last year, which is now going through the various parliaments, or it did so in, in the autumn of last year, there is uh, always the uh, confirmation that this is a temporary mechanism. It's linked to the current budgetary seven-year period in, in the uh, EU. It's not meant to be uh, permanent. It was a response to a, a very strong and particular crisis, dramatic crisis. So that is clearly uh, the attitude uh, up front. But uh, the crucial question here is whether this uh, rescue or recovery fund will work so well that uh, the case for it becomes strong uh, to continue uh, beyond uh, this current budgetary period. Uh, There is clearly a need sometimes uh, for common mechanisms, uh, both to uh, Uh, stabilize the economies uh, with the kind of major shock we've seen, but also in assuring that countries do not lapse into what happened after the financial crisis, that they tend to postpone investment, uh, which is important for long-term growth, uh, rather than other expenditures, uh, public consumption, uh, wages, and so on. Leaving aside the Recovery Fund, stimulus spending at the national
0: level has sent government deficits and debt soaring. Fiscal deficits in Europe
1: are set to increase by about 6% of GDP in 2020. This is large, but it's entirely appropriate in the circumstances.
0: For now, the European Commission has suspended its fiscal rules known as the Stability and Growth Pact. But at some point, rules will need to be reactivated. And even before the pandemic, compliance with the pact was spotty.
2: The EU has warned eight Eurozone countries that their spending plans for next year risk breaking the bloc's spending rules. It's the first time the Commission has reviewed the budget assumptions of Eurozone states,
1: and it has the right to request a revised budget plan from a Eurozone member if it
2: breaks debt and deficit rules. Those warned include Spain, Portugal and Italy.
0: According to some of the EU's poorer members, the pact's rigid targets made little sense in a low interest rate environment. And following the explosion of borrowing over the last year, those targets are no longer credible at all. Niels, you've warned that returning to a rules-based EU framework for national fiscal policies must not be postponed indefinitely. But which rules? No one believes that countries like Italy and Greece will bring their public debt down to 60% of GDP anytime soon. So when binding fiscal constraints resume, what form should they take?
1: That is something that uh, we don't quite know yet, uh, but the crisis has created a very different atmosphere. Before the crisis, there was uh, indeed a good deal of dissatisfaction with the rules. They had become too complex and had other weaknesses, as you mentioned. Now there's a new, uh, really new game, because uh, the, uh, in particular, the rise in Uh, government debt that we've seen as a result of the pandemic in 2020 means that um, seven countries are now well into the triple figures for debt. Uh, Some are near 200%. uh, And the whole level has been shut up by, uh, moved up by 15 to 20 percentage points. So it's uh, naive to pretend that you can just introduce the same rules and expect that you can in some operational way move... uh, fairly rapidly towards the 60%, which is the norm, in a sense, the long-term reference value for public debt, which is in the treaty. Uh, that, that element has to be rethought and, and the discussion is, in part, in what way can one retain a long-term sustainability consideration without making it too binding in the short run or too, uh, too contractionary in the short run. That is uh, the, the, the one of the main challenges. The other is that um, As a result of flexible interpretation, countries had been left with too much uh, discretion and too much cherry-picking of which indicators they reported and and, uh, relied on for judging the appropriateness of their policy. That also has to be simplified. Uh, And then the the third uh, challenge, somehow the rules or the management of the rules should ensure that um, investment is not... Uh, systematically bearing the brunt of cutbacks in public expenditures when they have to come. Uh, There should be uh, some favoritism towards uh, uh, public expenditures that enhance growth in the long term. That's the final element uh, could, in a sense, uh, be seen as... uh, potentially taken out of the rules by a European mechanism, by what you have discussed before, the recovery fund, which exactly focuses on public uh, expenditures that enhance growth. Uh, so uh, the problem may be solved by this mix of national rules and uh, European uh, mechanism.
0: Can Europe achieve such a mixture? Before the 2019 European Parliament elections, many worried that euroskeptic parties and candidates would radically alter the body's makeup, setting the stage for years of political turmoil and paralysis within the EU. But it
2: didn't happen. An electorate of over 400 million had its say. A surprise surge for green parties in the European Parliament elections. The grouping bagged a double-digit score in the biggest countries across the continent, including a stunning 20% in the largest of them all, Germany. This election was a climate change election. This election was an election for democracy, for human rights, for a Europe open to the world. A
0: green wave extended up to Finland, over to Ireland, down to Portugal and back to Belgium. These pro-European candidates will combine with Emmanuel Macron's party in France and smaller pro-European parties in the UK to keep the majority of parliament pro-EU. By the time COVID-19 arrived, the EU's new leadership had unveiled plans for a European Green Deal, a more proactive foreign policy and other ambitious initiatives. The question now is whether today's leaders can follow through. Niels, throughout your career, you worked closely with many European heads of state, from former German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt to former French President Valéry Giscard d'Estaing. And based on that experience, what do you think are the most important attributes for European national leaders when it comes to navigating EU politics and integration?
1: When you uh, mentioned the the two uh... Leaders of Germany and France in the uh, late 1970s, uh, Schmidt and Chiscardi d'Estaing uh, You mentioned that the two people who combined uh, a vision for Europe for Europe's longer-term integration with a kind of technical knowledge that enabled them actually to move things along, and, and uh, uh, they did so. Uh, they did so by tightening monetary cooperation at the time, and they clearly prevailed over uh, more, let's say, uh, reluctant colleagues in the European Council. So they had a particular strength, but we must also note that um, uh, they left office. Uh, They were both weakened politically at home, uh, partly maybe because they went too far in terms of of, uh, uh, speaking to each other and coordinating with each other. Uh, There was also another promising uh, face uh, with very different personalities when uh, these two leaders were replaced by respectively uh, President Mitterrand in France and Chancellor Kohl in Germany. Uh, they didn't uh, care much about the details of uh, economic integration or uh, single currency and all that, but they had a fundamental commitment to European integration, which in the end proved to be decisive for the uh, realization of EMU, particularly, of course, uh, Chancellor Kohl, who uh, uh, no doubt overwrote uh, strong opposition in parts of German opinion uh, to the project. And you can always find a mixture of these two types of... uh, politicians but uh, uh, most of them uh, have not been of course uh, since the email was started have not been so strongly committed uh, to the european idea as uh, the the four presidents and heads of government that we just talked about uh, they are more managing a system that already exists and trying to do a bit better on that but there is as i say a new mood in in uh, 2020 and the uh, a breakthrough with the uh, Common uh, Recovery Fund and the ability of the European Union to issue its own debt uh, in large quantities is in principle a breakthrough. We'll be back after the break.
2: We know you've been alarmed and exhausted by the turmoil of the past year in the United States and all over the world. We saw outright lies fuel doubt in our elections and spark an insurrection. We saw international leaders like the US and the UK screw up their response to the global pandemic. And we're seeing strongman tactics threaten democratic institutions in countries like Brazil, India, and Hungary. At the same time, people have mobilized like never before to defend democracy, promote civil rights, and address the climate crisis. Does this fill you with a mix of anxiety and hope? There's a new podcast from the University of Virginia that's helping listeners to make sense of it all. It's called Democracy in Danger. Each week, hosts Will Hitchcock and Siva Vadianathan unpack the threats facing democracy and ask what we can do about it. They cover topics like successful protest movement with legendary activist, Sirja Popovich, the radical idea of de the economy with anthropologist, Jason Hickel, and the terror of cyber-stalking with MacArthur Fellow, Danielle Citron. Visit org for more and subscribe to Democracy in Danger on any podcast app.
0: Niels, what about innovative thinkers? You were close with Milton Friedman and other luminaries who influenced earlier debates about European integration. And
1: who else stands out in your mind for their impact on today's EU? Those who have really been important to uh, the realization of of EMU, uh, the three uh, I would mention in particular, you already mentioned uh, Friedman. He was, of course, the intellectual uh, spearhead of of, uh, the idea that uh, central banks should focus strictly on. on, price stability in the medium term, and that was uh, very much taken over in the ECB and it's an important part in the uh, whole structure of European integration. Uh, the two others I would mention are also uh, did their main work in the United States. Uh, uh, they were Robert Triffin, uh, a Belgian who uh, was a professor at Yale for many, many years, but came back to Europe when uh, European integration really picked up and, and had a major influence on policymakers. extensive network uh, and he was very instrumental in in uh, pushing uh, also the idea of monetary integration and financial Mm -hmm. integration and the third one i would mention is uh, robert Mundell, who died uh, just last week he was um, the father of the theory of of, uh, macroeconomics in the open economy and and had enormous influence in that way he uh, became a strong uh, advocate of uh, monetary integration in the form of a single currency in Europe because he placed great emphasis on the uh, transparency it would create, the uh, elimination of any risk of exchange rate changes. uh, Because one observation that he made often was that uh, one can have an idealistic view of the role of exchange rates they can make, work as a buffer. But the way they actually worked in much of the second half of the last century was that they aggravated uh, disturbances. Uh, they magnified them, and they had to be brought back under control. And, and he was uh, advocating they should be locked up in a region such as, uh, as Europe. But the ideas
0: that shaped policymaking in both America and Europe weren't without their faults. Following the 2008 global financial crisis, many questioned how economists could have missed what was coming. Alan Greenspan, former chairman of the Federal Reserve, testified before lawmakers about the causes of the financial crisis. Greenspan conceded he might have been, as he put it, partially wrong in not moving to regulate trading of some derivatives that are among the root causes of the credit crisis. He also admitted his free market ideology may be flawed. You found it's a flaw in
1: the flaw, reality. flaw
0: in the model that I perceived is the critical functioning structure that defines how the world works, so to speak. In other words, you found that
1: your, your view of the world, your ideology, was not right. It that, was not that, that working. Is, it, a, it precisely.
0: Niels, the 2008 global financial crisis exposed serious flaws in prevailing macroeconomic models. You participated in academic work to reform the economics discipline after the crisis. What are the biggest achievements to come out of that work so far? And how should new economic thinking be applied to our current era of uncertainty?
1: I think uh, phases of progress, uh, breakthroughs in in economic theory and research have played a major role also in the longer-run story that we were talking about before. Much of this ambition about having a common policy, uh, fiscal policy in particular, that required that uh, a lot of progress had been made in, in uh, modeling the economy, understanding how uh, policy changes worked and, and also worked across borders. And there was an explosion of that kind of work in the 1960s. Uh, as we look back on it now, it was overly optimistic, but it played a major role in, in underpinning the ambitions of policymakers to go further and... and uh, uh, let's say, add to the decision-making uh, in, on fiscal policy. Then on, on in the build-up of, of uh, the treaty and the European Central Bank, I already mentioned that that was a time when when uh, uh, economists thought that uh, fiscal policy maybe had overplayed its role and that the, the best thing economic policy could do was to commit to medium-term targets. And good research was produced there uh, to suggest that um, the central bank should indeed focus on the medium term price stability and inflation target. So uh, that was also a contribution. Then we get to the more uh, recent uh, period. And I think there has been a certain uh, realization that uh, uh, economists had uh, become in a way uh, overconfident in what they could predict and understand and and, uh, uh, therefore uh, the structures of decision-making had to take other things into account as well and recognize that from time to time, models had to be revised and updated. And the central banks who have a somewhat easier task than maybe fiscal policy makers in this have, have made enormous progress in, in designing models that do not rely excessively on very detailed uh, formulation of models, but uh, incorporate that uh, there is some fundamental uncertainty and you have to react... To changes in the uh, economic outlook that are important, so um, I think uh, uh, there's a lot of contributions from uh, economics uh, to this, but also to the of course the uh, revival of, of fiscal policy that 's also an, an intellectual change that, after maybe two or three decades when fiscal policy had played a somewhat too limited role in, in economic policy making, it is now coming to the fore and then being uh, emphasized strongly also by mainstream economists. And this is, of course, a message that many politicians pick up and uh, take it even further and become uh, overconfident that they can do everything through fiscal policy. So we have these uh, long-term swings in in, uh, economic policy making that are related to uh, changes in the thinking among economists. Uh, That's a very interesting uh, interaction.
0: Changes in economic policy do not reflect only shifts in thinking. Even before the COVID-19 crisis, Europeans were increasingly aware of their strategic vulnerability. Many now believe that China must be kept at arm's length. So what China is concerned, we as the European
2: Union, we know exactly on what side of the table we're sitting. We're sitting on the side of the democracies.
0: And the fear that the U.S. could again elect a rogue president has convinced Europeans of the need for greater self-sufficiency, or what EU leaders are calling strategic autonomy. European strategic autonomy. I repeat, European strategic autonomy. These are not just words. The strategic independence of Europe is our new common project for this century. It's in all our common interest. The geopolitical context has influenced the EMU since it first took shape. And today's dramatic shifts in global power can be expected to shape it as well. Niels, you were at the OECD in the early 1970s when the Bretton Woods system collapsed following America's abandonment of the gold standard. Today, China, Europe, and even private actors like Facebook are exploring alternatives to the dollar as an international means of exchange. How will this affect the euro? do you see the world heading toward a new
1: monetary arrangement at the global level? I doubt it's difficult enough, as we have demonstrated in Europe, to keep one together in in, in Europe. And and there are differences. There are arguments also for why there should be some flexibility uh, between economies as different as those of the United States, uh, the uh, euro area, and China, for example, or Japan, for that matter flexibility may be appropriate. But one crucial element here is that uh, those currencies that participate in such a system should have a certain size and weight. Otherwise, they can become uh, part of a whipsaw movement uh, if uh, there are dramatic developments in the United States or, for that matter, these days in China. So uh, that was one uh, thing that uh, was uh, strongly part of the original philosophy of uh, building monetary integration in Europe that there had to be a, a regional, uh, not a replacement of the dollar, but a regional effort to counterbalance the dollar in the international system. And uh, I think we can see that uh, uh, that promise has to some extent been fulfilled. Uh, uh, the euro is today, although it is internationally a much smaller currency than the, uh, uh, than the dollar, uh, it doesn't fluctuate as widely. Uh, the swings are less violent than they were in the, in the 80s, for example. Uh, when we had massive uh, appreciations followed by downward movements of currencies. So uh, I think we have already a somewhat robust uh, system, but it's very important that uh, the central banks in such a system maintain close uh, links and maintain good relations among themselves. I think in particular the three I mentioned from the Federal Reserve and and the uh, European Central Bank and the People's Bank of China, because they can do harm to each other if they... uh, Uh, pursue policies strictly on their own terms. So in that sense, I think there's a recognition that, uh, uh, particularly in the the monetary area, we we do need uh, uh, a good deal of contact and coordination of policy. It was
0: once hoped that the euro would become more firmly established as an international currency.
1: That hasn't happened. But could it? Uh, It's a fact, as as you say, that uh, Uh, In a way, the the weight of the euro has stayed at a a fairly low level. It's not much different from what the Deutschmark uh, weighed in the international system in 2000 when the euro had just started. So um, it has not grown in great importance. And and one major handicap uh, for the euro is that it doesn't have financial markets of the size of, of the United States. It doesn't have particularly unified markets that are very large. Uh, That again is a a development that uh, may and and I think will change over time and and one can see the uh, uh, creation of common borrowing by the uh, European Union uh, in the markets and the issue of safe European bonds uh, as a corresponding instrument to what the uh, US Treasury market has been in in the uh, development of the role of the dollar. The dollar remains uh, certainly the reference point in the international system, and for that reason, one relies on, on good coordination with the United States and in many issues. But uh, the euro will uh, develop a good deal further once it also has uh, made a more important financial role and it can offer overseas investors more in terms of uh, a supply of a large supply of safe assets, and that that is beginning to happen.
0: That was Niels Thijgesen, an economist and emeritus professor at the University of Copenhagen. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching for ProSyn. That's P-R-O-S-Y-N. I'm Jonathan Stein, Managing Editor of Project Syndicate. Elmira Bay-Rosley will be back next time. Opinion Hazard is produced and edited by Kasha Bursalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editor Whitney Arana.